We've spent some time this morning looking at the events of that very first Good Friday. What happened? But for the next few minutes, I'd like to spend some time looking at the significance of those events. What what happened means for me. And I'd like to do so from the book of Romans, Romans chapter 3 and verses 21 to 25. The Apostle Paul writes this, But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. There are a lot of things that we could look at in these five short verses, but this morning I'd like to focus our attention on one little phrase in verse 21, the righteousness of God. And I'd like us to see what it is, why we need it, how we receive it, and what difference it makes. Firstly, what is the righteousness of God? Or what is righteousness, full stop? Uh, The word righteousness has developed a bit of a negative connotation in our world. For example, we don't like it when we think of someone as being self-righteous. But basically, righteousness means being acceptable or having the right credentials in order to be acceptable. So, for example, if you want to go to university, the university will have a list of entrance requirements. And if you meet those requirements, then you are accepted. Or if you're wanting to apply for a job, you take along your CV and you hope that that will allow you to be accepted for the job. Or even on a more mundane level, there are certain restaurants where you can't get in unless you are wearing a tie. Certain swimming pools that you can't use without wearing a swimming cap. The wearing of a tie or a swimming cap is considered to be an acceptable dress code. As human beings, we understand this idea of being acceptable of having the qualifications or the requirements to be allowed in. And we're so used to this that we also apply it to our spirituality. Every religion or belief system has a concept of righteousness, what it means to be acceptable to God, a list of credentials that you need in order to be accepted by him. I've told you the story before about a man who appeared before St. Peter at the pearly gates Peter looked through the list and said, that's odd, I don't see your name, but have you done anything worthwhile in your life at any point? The man replied, well, yes, once I came across a motorbike gang who were teasing a young woman, and so I went up to the leader, I smacked him on the head, I pushed over his bike, I pulled out his nose ring, and I said, you leave her alone, punk, or you'll answer to me. St. Peter was impressed, and he said, when did this happen? And the man replied, oh, about three minutes ago. Every human being has an idea of what one needs in order to be acceptable to God. 
Even if you don't belong to a particular religion or belief system, you have some concept of righteousness, your list of what should allow you into God's presence. But notice what we're being offered today. We're not being offered a clean record for ourselves. We're not being offered the righteousness of a good human being, not even of a completely sinless human being. We are offered the righteousness of God. Paul describes this righteousness in a bit more detail in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where he writes, God made Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We'll look at this again in a moment, but notice that this doesn't simply mean a clean record. The righteousness of God is the righteousness of Christ, not just his sinlessness, but his good, perfect, righteous life is also attributed to us. So that's what we're being offered, the righteousness of God. And that brings us to our second point. Why do we need this righteousness? If you've read the book of Romans, you will know that Paul has spent the first two chapters of the book carefully arguing with much evidence that actually no one is righteous. No one has the qualifications to be acceptable to God. He begins in chapter one by speaking about how the Gentiles are unacceptable to God. Now, everyone knew that the pagan world could not possibly be acceptable to God. I mean, the pagans were just that. They were pagans. They were involved in all sorts of horrible practices. There is no way that they would be acceptable to God. It's interesting that in a similar way, we too know people that are worse than we are, don't we? That often forms part of our system of righteousness, of what it means to be acceptable to God. We say things like, well, at least I'm better than she is. One writer says, we know what really wicked people are like. We see them in the papers every day, and we're not like that. God must find us, in comparison, quite endearing. But in chapter 2, Paul turns from the pagan world, and he looks at one of the most moral and ethical groups that have ever lived, his own people, the Jews, with their list of 613 commandments, and he spends an entire chapter demolishing their acceptability, their righteousness. There's a very telling turning point in Romans chapter 2 where Paul asks a series of penetrating questions. He says, you therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. And that's the problem, isn't it? No matter how scrupulous we may be in our morals and ethics, we actually can't measure up. One person has used this illustration. He says, imagine you went through life with a recording device that recorded your every word. Actually, there's a conspiracy theory at the moment that believes that governments are listening into our conversations through our cell phone microphone. So let's say it's true. And we get to the end of our lives and God says to us, I'm going to be fair. I'm not going to judge you by the Ten Commandments if you didn't believe in that. I'm not going to judge you by the Bible if you've never read it. I'm going to judge you by what you said you expected from others. 
I'm going to judge you on your own standards for people. Let's see how you do. Play the tape. And if we're honest, you and I have a problem. I can't keep the standards I expect others to keep. I can't keep the standards I expect for myself. But none of that really matters in the light of what Paul says in verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If the pass mark for an exam is 70% and I get 69% and you get 40%, it doesn't matter because we've both failed. If I'm better than Hitler, but not quite as good as Mother Teresa, it doesn't matter because no matter our system of righteousness, all of us fall short of the glory of God. So we're offered the righteousness of God and we need this because if we're honest, we're not righteous. But thirdly, how do we receive the righteousness of God? Well, in these verses, Paul uses two pictures to explain to us what took place on the cross of Christ that Good Friday. Firstly, he invites us in our imaginations down to the marketplace, and in particular to the slave market, something that would have been a usual part of Paul's world. Have a look at the second part of verse 24. Paul says that we are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Here we are in the slave market and there are these men and women who are trapped. They are stuck in their situation. Some of them would have sold themselves into slavery to get out of debt. Others would have been kidnapped or have been the plunder from war, but they are helpless they are someone else's property. They have no rights of their own. Their very existence depends on the whim of their master. Their only hope is that one of their relatives will come and pay the redemption price that would allow them to go free. A redemption price was a price that was paid to free a slave. And the Bible often speaks about the fact that we are slaves that we have been taken captive, or rather that we have sold ourselves willingly. <clears throat> Pardon me. We've sold ourselves willingly to sin. We are slaves to sin. The atheist turned Christian journalist Malcolm Mugridge once wrote this. In the dark little dungeon of our own ego, we are prisoners of our self-centeredness, prisoners of our guilt, prisoners of the wrath of God that is upon us because of our inexcusable guilt. And the only hope for us is to be set free. And Jesus has paid the redemption price to set us free. And look at the price. The Apostle Peter writes in the New Testament and he says, you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. God himself, in the person of his son Jesus, paid the price to set us free. And then in verse 25, Paul takes us to another part of the city, this time to the temple. And he uses a second picture to illustrate what took place on the cross. He says, God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement 
through faith in his blood. Now, the concept of a sacrifice might be foreign to us, but it would have been very familiar to the people in Paul's day. The Greeks and Romans understood the idea of sacrifice. They knew that the gods were often very angry, and so you presented a sacrifice to make them pleased with you again. But notice some important differences between a secular sacrifice and Christ's atoning sacrifice. The pagan gods were often angry, but they were also capricious, spiteful, vindictive, bad-tempered. God, however, is not bad-tempered or capricious, but his wrath is seen against our sin. Just in the same way that you as a parent would be angry at a drug dealer or imposter who was damaging your child. God cannot look at the things that go on in our world and remain unmoved by it all. God's wrath is his personal divine revulsion towards evil and his personal vigorous opposition to it. In secular sacrifices, it was the people themselves who brought something to the gods to try and appease them and make them do what they wanted them to do. But in Christianity, it is God himself who takes the initiative. We read in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 10 that this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And thirdly, the sacrifice is different. In a secular sacrifice, people bring the very best gift they possibly can. They come before the gods with their best spices and grain and wine and gold and silver and animals, even their own children. But with Christ's sacrifice, it is very clear that we don't have anything to offer. Everything we have comes from the hand of God and we can't offer our lives because they are sinful. And so God offers himself in the person of his son, Jesus. Jesus presents himself as a sacrifice of atonement, at one moment. Two parties that are enemies are brought together through the sacrifice of Jesus. I mentioned 2 Corinthians chapter 5 a moment ago. God made Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's an incredible verse. What this means is that God looks at that figure of such purity hanging on the cross, and he says, there's the thief, there's the molester, there's the rapist, there's the adulterer, there's the corrupt official, there's the liar, there's the pervert, there's the materialist, there's the murderer, there's the hijacker, there's the drunk driver. And God looks at you and me, and if we've accepted what Jesus did for us, there on the cross, God looks at us and says, well, in the light of the cross, that person there, there is purity, there is righteousness, there is obedience. That's what God has done. But again, how do we receive this? Well, there is nothing that we can do to receive it. Look at verse 24. We are justified freely by his grace. 
and verse 22, this righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Faith is simply the hand that receives all that God longs to give, forgiveness of sins and a right relationship with himself. Faith is our yes to God's invitation. You get a wedding invitation and on the bottom there are four little letters, RSVP, Responde Silvil Play, please respond. I'm invited to the wedding, but I need to say yes. And saying yes doesn't earn my way to the reception. I'm invited freely. It's all been paid for and prepared. But if I don't respond, I won't be able to get in. Can I ask you, have you responded to God's offer of the righteousness of God, forgiveness and justification? Those words together express the fullness of what God offers you today. Forgiveness says you may go. You have been let off the penalty which your sin deserves. Justification says you may come. You are welcome to all my love and presence. Have you received that for yourself? And if not, what's preventing you from saying yes to Jesus right now where you are? We've looked at what the righteousness of God is. We've looked at why we need it and how we receive it. But finally, I want us to look at the difference it makes. And I wanted to mention just two areas. Firstly, when I understand that I have been given the righteousness of God, it changes my sense of identity, of how I see myself. So, for example, someone pays me a compliment. They come up to me and say, well done, you did a good job. It's nice to hear that, and hopefully it's true. But I don't have to base my identity or my sense of worth on those compliments. According to what we've seen today, even if I were to do good things for the rest of my life, my goodness wouldn't make me acceptable to God. It's good to be good. It's nice to be liked. But my identity doesn't depend on that. And I can quietly pray, thank you, Lord, that I could do a good job. But thank you more that my life is hidden with Christ in God and that my acceptance is not based on the good that I do, but on the fact that when you look at me, you see Jesus. Or take the opposite extreme. Someone accuses me of doing something wrong. They yell at me. They're nasty. And maybe what they say is even untrue. At that moment, I can say to myself, well, he's wrong about that one. But boy, if he knew some of the other sinful things in my life, I'm not going to tell him, but, but God knows. So how can I be so angry about what he said or get myself into a huff? How can I say, how dare you accuse me of something like that, when all the time I know full well that there are other times when I've done deep wrong to God and to others and I've got away with it? Being falsely accused of something I've done over here just makes up for all the other times I've messed up over there and there's been no one around to accuse me. 
I can try and set the record straight if I think it's necessary, but I don't have to defend myself as if my whole identity were tied to be being right in this situation. My life is hidden with Christ in God. When he sees me, he sees the righteousness of his son. And secondly, an understanding of the righteousness of God has implications for when I sin. What happens if the person who is accusing me of wrongdoing is actually right? I have messed up. I've done wrong. Or what happens when I secretly sin and no one sees? A proper understanding of what it means to be clothed in God's righteousness helps me when I sin. This is so important. The gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done, is for Christians. The gospel is not there just to make unbelievers Christians. The gospel is for Christians. Why would I think that the gospel is good news for unbelievers, but not good news for me as a Christian? As Christians, we experience good days and bad days, don't we? Let's say Monday this week was a good day. You got up early on the morning. You had a quiet time. You're aware of God's presence during the day. Perhaps you listened to worship music in your car and you felt your heart connect with God's heart. You let other drivers in front of you. You didn't yell at any taxi drivers. You spent time with your children and with your wife or husband and you feel pretty good. You've had a good day. But then there are days when you blow it. Let's say Wednesday was a bad day. You woke up late. You didn't read God's word. You didn't acknowledge him during the day. In fact, halfway through the day, you fell into a sin that often trips you up. Anger, malice, drunkenness, pornography, greed, whatever. And what happens after days like that? You feel terrible and you spend the next few days avoiding God. You don't talk to him. You skip church. You try and keep a low profile. After a few days of that, you start doing a few good things again. Maybe you begin to read your Bible and after another day or two, you offer up a cautious prayer and eventually you feel better. But according to what we've seen this morning, our ability to approach God in prayer has absolutely nothing to do with whether it's Monday or Wednesday, whether we're having a good day or a bad day. You and I have been freely forgiven. We've received the righteousness of God, not due to anything that we have done. When God looks at us, he does not see our sin, but rather his son. And it's precisely when I have sinned that I have this assurance. There's a lovely song by Graham Kendrick called, For This I Have Jesus. And when I sin and fall and mess up, precisely then I need to say to myself, for this sin I have Jesus. What is the point of me trying to deal with my own sin by hiding and avoidance on the one hand or doing righteous acts on the other hand? It's precisely for this moment of sin that I have Jesus. And so I pray, Lord Jesus, I confess that I have just lusted. I acknowledge that you who knew no lust became lust for me on the cross. You have already paid the price for this sin. And then I reflect. The Bible says that Jesus stands at the right hand of God and he prays for me. And he doesn't pray for mercy. He doesn't say, Father, give Andrew a break. 
He prays for justice. He says, Father, your laws demand justice. Your law demands payment. The wages of sin is death. Andrew's sin deserves payment. Here it is. I've paid for it in blood and death. And because no one can ever ask for two payments for the same debt, I ask you for justice. I ask on the basis of the pay, of my payment that you acquit Andrew, that you declare him not guilty. And then I pray again and I say, Father God, I thank you not just for forgiving me, but for taking your son's perfect, spotless, utterly pure record when it comes to lust and attributing his perfect life to me. As a Christian, I need to take the righteousness of God and apply it to my life on a daily basis. I need to speak to myself. As we sing in that hymn, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, up would I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Saviour died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Or as another older hymn puts it, Well may the accuser roar of sins that I have done. I know them all and thousands more. My Father knoweth none. And so as we go out into this next week, from our time at the foot of the cross, I trust and pray that it will be with this thought in mind. Colossians 3 verse 3, For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When God looks at me, he does not see my sin, but rather he sees his Son if I've accepted his sacrifice and I am in him. And that thought can radically change anything that I face this week. When I have to forgive someone, I remember I have been forgiven a huge debt of sin. Surely I can forgive this person for the little thing they have done to me. When I'm faced with a temptation to sin, I remember I am not my own. I have been bought at a price. Let me honour the God who has forgiven me and given me his righteousness. When I face discouragement, belittlement, heartbreak, I remind myself, I have received the righteousness of God and he calls me his beloved son or his beloved daughter. When I face difficulties and trials, I remember if God is for me, who can be against me? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for me, how will he not also along with him graciously give me all that I need? When I have an opportunity to witness, how can I remain silent about this wonderful gift of forgiveness and justification? And when I trip and fall into sin, I remember God made Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for me, so that in him I might become the righteousness of God. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Amen.